Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for July 5th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a little bit of film and TV news, and then we're going to jump into our feature presentation, which is the best films of the first half of 2018. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast are Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers Y Trend Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, before we get into our feature presentation, uh, we should say that the news is very slow. You know, it's a holiday week and everybody in Hollywood tends to, you know, take, uh, you know, the day before and the day after holiday off, which means that not much news has been hitting the wires today. But we do have one little bit of news and that includes uh, that uh, revolves around the Fast and the Furious franchise. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, so Idris Elba has been cast as the villain in the first Fast and Furious spinoff, which is called Hobbs and Shaw. This is the movie that uh, features Dwayne Johnson's special agent Luke Hobbs and Jason Statham's Deckard Shaw teaming up to uh, apparently face off against a character played by Idris Elba. We don't know anything about his villain character other than he's just the main bad guy in the movie. But um, I don't know. Elba is like a really terrific actor. He's super physical. And I feel like he has the ability to, you know, go toe to toe with these guys if they want to get into like a physical brawl. He could also do, you know, some some more uh, mental psychological games with them as well. So I, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity here. I, I love him as an actor. And I think this is um, a chance for him to step into something that's a lot more fun than the work that he's been doing recently. Like I'm thinking specifically about um, the dark. The, yeah. The dark tower. <laughs> and like, this has got to be, uh, I mean, this movie is going to be so goofy and ridiculous and over the top because that's what all these fast and furious movies are. Um, so I, I have to think that he's going to have a lot of fun in this movie and, and he's going to be a lot of fun to watch going head to head with those guys. Well, is this just another case of, you know, the guy with the English accent being the villain? In a big, you know, blockbuster spy heist I mean, movie. 
Kind of, but I, I hope that they actually lean into that because I feel like uh, Idris Elba has not been able to use his natural uh, English accent very much in movies recently, or at least in mainstream blockbuster stuff. So I, I think that uh, if he plays maybe like a former associate of Deckard Shaw or something who is in the British military in the, the Fast and Furious verse, um, then maybe that would be a cool opportunity for him to just, uh, you know, sort of play like a, a fast and loose and, and like a, a use his actual natural accent in this film okay guys let's jump into our feature presentation and that is the best movies of 2018 so far this week on the site we've been publishing uh your list the list of the the slash film contributors uh listing their favorite movies that they've seen this year so far and uh, so far chris and ben have published their list ht's list hits uh the site tomorrow um but we're gonna get a preview here I did a non-scientific mathematical calculation and ordered the list uh, based on uh, the highest any one of the contributors has it on the list. And we're going to talk about all the films that are on any of these three lists uh, right now. I think this is a great chance because, uh, you know, the first half of the year isn't as daunting as the last half of the year with all the Oscar bait and awards consideration films. And uh, there were some great films. Actually, looking at this list, I am shocked at how many films I have not seen. So I think this is a great chance for the slash film daily listeners and myself to get caught up on some of these films uh and maybe uh you know put some of these movies on their radars uh so they can go check it out before you know that wave of award stuff happens uh you know starting this fall uh let's start this out uh with chris's number 10 and that is the endless chris tell us about it uh yeah the endless is a the latest film from justin benson and aaron moorhead uh they're this duo who make really unique kind of quirky indie horror films. Uh, their first film was called resolution. Uh, and they followed that up with a movie called spring, which is, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's just this, this weird romantic horror movie. And this is their latest and it's, it's really good. It's not quite as good as spring, but it, uh, I loved it still. Um, it's about two brothers who escaped, from a UFO death cult when they were kids. And uh, one of the two has found life on the outside to be kind of just depressing. Like he misses living with the cult. And as fate has it, uh, the cult call them back and they, they go back to just sort of pay a visit to get closure. And while once they get there, things get really uh, weird. I mean, the less I say about this, the better, because it's one of those movies where the less you know, the more exciting it is. But it's great. It's just one of these really strange, unique films. And what I love about uh, Benson and Moorhead is, uh, you know, while their films are technically horror, they also put a lot of, like, humanity and heart into them. And this film is like that, too, where it has this sort of nice message buried in all the, the, the weird, creepy stuff. What genre of film would you place this in? Because I, I really haven't heard anything about this film other from you. I'd say this is uh, this is like sci-fi, horror, thriller, uh, drama. It's like all of those <laughs> combined. 
I mean, looking at some of the screenshots from this one, it looks beautiful. Uh, it's getting 97% of Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so I'm, g- I'm definitely going to have to check this out. Uh, let's move on to our number t- two movie here. Uh, that is Ant-Man and the Wasp. A- and I should explain before uh, Ben talks about this film that the way we put together these uh, these lists were it was any movie that we had personally seen in the first half of 2018. So even though Ant-Man and the Wasp uh, isn't out until, what, tonight or tomorrow? Uh, you know, it made Ben's list at number 10. So, Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, I just, I really liked this movie a lot. Um, I think there's no question in my mind that Avengers Infinity War is like a more impressive and substantial movie in Marvel Studios in the grand scheme of everything that Marvel's got going on. But I feel like Ant-Man and the Wasp, because the comedy works so well in this movie, and I won't spoil anything about the movie, and, and everybody already knows what the basic gist of this film is. So I don't even really need to go into that. But I just want to give it some props because... I think the humor works so well in this movie, and that's something that I feel like even you know culturally and even as movie writers, sometimes what what we do, we tend to devalue comedies in in rankings like these. And uh, I think Ant Man and the Wasp shows how uh, Peyton Reed and Paul Rudd and all the people involved with this movie how easy they make it look, and and just thinking about how. Um, it's not easy to make a comedy like this where most of the jokes land, which is a big deal for me because I feel like in most studio comedies, I'm only laughing at, I don't know, 10 or 15% of the jokes. But this one was like up there. I don't know. It was like 80, 90% or something for me. I don't know the actual mathematical breakdown, but this film was hilarious. Michael Pena comes in and just steals every scene he's in. And um, it's definitely a lighter sort of fluffier movie, but uh, I I just want to, I feel like, I would be doing it a disservice if um, if I didn't give it some credit for nailing the comedy as well as, as it does. Uh, the, you know, I, I'm shocked that you put this on your list, but not Infinity War. But you explained it. And it, 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 I, I will give a spoiler for this entire list. Infinity War did not make any of the contributors here's lists. But there is another Marvel movie. Uh, we'll talk about that later. But let's move on to a documentary won't You Be My Neighbor, which we've talked about uh, extensively on this podcast. But HT, tell us why you loved it. So Won't You Be My Neighbor is the documentary about Fred Rogers, his life and legacy, uh, as the host of the popular children's TV show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And it's directed by Morgan Neville and kind of uh, compiles footage from the show as well as some home videos of Fred Rogers behind the scenes. It kind of shows him the man behind the curtain, so to speak. And uh, it was it's such a touching, affecting, and heartwarming film that I felt like really embodied that this new strain of movies that just preach the good in people. And I I really love to see that movies that really speak to and tap into like the good in humanity and that kind of thing. And uh, I know Ben had some criticisms last week of, you know, not being able to see some of like the, his struggles and everything like that. And I do like the idea that I, I would have I would have liked the idea of seeing some of that as well. But I think that the more important thing is like the message that he relayed and the the way that he played such a formative part in many children's including mine, my childhood. So it's just such a, a lovely documentary that really um, just is able to almost imitate that feeling that watching Mr. Rogers neighborhood gave as a kid, just like that the world will be all right. This is a film that pretty much everybody loves. I think there's 150 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and there's only one Rotten. And uh, it, it's some guy from the film stage who basically gave it a C because, you, you know, uh, there isn't the 
basically the criticism that Chris gave it. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I would say everybody should go out and check out that film. Uh, Another film we've talked about earlier in the year, The Death of Stalin. Chris and HT both had it on their list. But, Chris, tell us about it. Uh, Yeah, I I saw The Death of Stalin last year at TIFF, and it it just finally came out this year. And uh, it's... It's from Armando Iannucci, who created Veep and directed In the Loop. Uh, and it's it's this very funny, very dark movie about the chaotic, comical fallout that happened in the Soviet Union after uh, you know Stalin died and all his advisors were, were jockeying for power. And it, this is one of the, the, the weirdest comedies I've ever seen because – it's very funny. It's like hysterically funny, but it's also insanely dark. Like this is one of the darkest comedies I've ever seen. Like almost every scene has people being like rounded up and murdered in the background. And yet somehow it, you know, through all of that, it remains very funny. And it's, it's almost impossible to nail a tone like that. Like I don't think many filmmakers could make this subject matter seem so funny but it, it works really well somehow let's talk about another film this is a small film that i think it got a lot of acclaim and that is the quiet place uh ben you had this number eight chris had in number nine tell us about it yeah john krasinski directed this movie i'm sure everybody because the film was such a huge hit i'm sure everybody knows the premise but it's basically an alien invasion has taken over uh, earth and this family has to stay alive by not making any sound because the aliens are attracted to uh to any noise that's over you know a whisper basically um I think Krasinski did a really wonderful job with this movie and, and he surprised a lot of people as the director. I think uh, the film itself sort of weaponizes sound in this really interesting way that that sort of, uh, you know, brought the uh, movie theaters, at least that I was in, into, you know, basically, which are like loud places and kind of obnoxious places where people <laughs> tend to uh, react terribly to to movies and behave like they're animals frankly um it it sort of forced everyone to be quiet because that's what this whole movie is is sort of uh hinged on um emily blunt is terrific in this movie i feel like if oscar voters took horror movies a little bit more seriously uh or, or at least mainstream horror movies like this um that she might actually get some awards consideration because she is so good in this film as the mother uh she plays the mother opposite john krasinski himself who is also really good in the movie and the kids are great the whole cast is really solid here and yeah i just i really enjoyed this movie it surprised the hell out of me and i think um you know it, it's probably going to get some technical achievements later in the year when award season rolls around but uh man this movie is really good yeah, I'm not making a best of the first half list uh, just because I, I feel like I haven't seen enough films uh, out of all the ones that you guys are listing here. But A Quiet Place would definitely make my uh, best of the first half if I had made one. Uh, but let's talk about another film, uh, Ben, Lizzie. Tell us about Lizzie. Yeah, Lizzie is really great. I saw it at Sundance, and it comes out on September 14th. So I know this was this one's uh, out of reach for for people at the moment, but I just want to put it on everybody's radar. Um, Chloe Sevigny, Savini, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, so I apologize for that. Uh, and Kristen Stewart are the leads in this movie, and it's basically about the story of Lizzie Borden, who you guys probably all know. the The gist of it of her story is that she murdered her parents uh, in this big axe murder. And um, it's sort of turned into like a children's uh, uh, like a sing song sort of nursery rhyme kind of thing. And I basically that's all I knew about the character of Lizzie Borden going into this movie. But 
it really sort of spins the whole thing on its head and tells the story from Lizzie's point of view. And it takes her from this monster that she, you know, appears as in these history books that we've learned about, you know, over the years and presents her as this like righteous heroine who definitely takes extreme action, but it's understandable where she's coming from because you see that she's been abused in this family. And I don't want to give anything away because this movie goes to some unexpected places, but the performances are really spectacular and the whole movie I think works really, really perfectly. uh, And especially where we are culturally right now. And in this sort of post Weinstein moment, um, anybody who feels, you know, oppressed or, um, or held down in any way, I feel like it's going to really relate to the messages of this film. And it, it gets pretty brutal uh, with the violence and, and you know, spoiler alert, Lizzie Borden murder, murders their parents in this movie, but and it's, it's pretty graphic. But, uh, but I think you understand the humanity of her character. And, um, and yeah, Kristen Stewart, I, I feel like she's, you know, for anybody who has still written her off as just that actress from Twilight, um, watch this movie because she's really great in it. Yeah, the, I feel like not being at Sundance really hurt uh, me from a critical standpoint of going into this year. Uh, I was sent home from Sundance with an injury, uh, and a, a bunch of the films on this uh, on this list come from Sundance. So uh, you know, Sundance is really a place that kind of kickstarts the year of uh, you know these kind of indie and smaller films. Uh, let's move on to a film that is not one of those, and that is Tully. H.T., you had this on your list at uh, number six. Yes. So Tully is the third collaboration between screenwriter Diablo Cody and director Jason Reitman after Juno and Young Adult. And it also stars Charlize Theron as a struggling um, mother who had just given birth to her third child and is essentially really struggling with the uh, postpartum depression and um, it's it, things sort of change when a nighttime nanny named Tully comes to help. And it, it's a really great story about uh, motherhood and like the hellish uh, situation that a lot of mothers like find themselves in. And it's Charlize Theron is amazing as this worn down and weary uh, mother at the heart of it. Um, and it's just like it's such a tender and really heartbreakingly filmed movie that has an un, a twist at the end that kind of elevates it from uh, a good movie to a great movie. I can't spoil it, but it's a it's a movie about about motherhood that people might uh, be put off from because it's not really particularly about them or they don't really want to know more about like the reality of life because it's a little depressing. But I encourage anyone who isn't isn't a mother or who hasn't experienced these kind of things to see it because it's just phenomenally performed, uh, wonderfully directed. And I think it's definitely uh, Diablo Cody and Jason Reitman's best film since Juno, if not better than Juno, I think. Yeah, it's great to see Reitman and Cody making a comeback after a couple, uh, you know, not considered uh, successful uh, entries into film and TV. Um, Although Reitman's uh, producing that casual show on a Hulu, which I haven't seen. I've heard uh, good things about. Uh, But let's move on to Revenge. Chris, this was on your list at number six. Tell us about it. Uh, Yes, Revenge is a very brutal production. probably too brutal for some viewers film uh, to this woman. She's having this affair with this married man and, and they're, they're in a, a secluded hideaway. I think it's somewhere near Las Vegas and they're, they're in the desert 
and it's supposed to be just them two alone and this guy's two very oafish terrible friends show up and uh ruin everything and uh i won't give away what happens but it, it results in this young woman basically having to both fight for her life and also seek revenge against these these terrible three guys. And uh, this movie is incredible. Um, like I said, it's really it's a brutal movie, so it, it's not going to be for everyone. The violence in this film is extreme to the point where it's almost uh, unrealistic. Like the amount of blood that comes out of people in this movie, I don't think actual humans have this much blood in their body it's like it's like insane but if if you can stomach it this this film is fantastic um it's just incredibly directed it looks just visually amazing and uh i don't know i i really liked it okay let's move on to ben's number six movie and that is blind spotting ben tell us yeah this this is another one that I saw at Sundance, and it comes out uh, sooner. It comes out on July 20th, so you, there's only a, a couple more weeks to wait for people to get a chance to see this one. And I really think everybody should see this because uh, Hamilton star David Diggs is the lead in this film, and it is pretty incredible. It's um, it's a movie that is really uh, hilarious, but it's also emotional, and it's a, it's about a lot of things like racial trauma. One of the characters sees an unarmed black man get gunned down in the streets by a police officer, so that's like a pretty timely thing right now, obviously. Um, but it, it also sort of tackles these ideas and, and big themes, you know, identity and perception, and there are stylistic flourishes in this movie that might uh, sound ridiculous when I explain them. Like, at one point, Actually, multiple times throughout the movie, uh, some of the cast members freestyle rap some of the dialogue. And that, I know that sounds really, really goofy, but um, it actually works really well in context. And the huge climax that this movie reaches at the end is unlike anything I've ever seen in any other movie. It, it's super unique and, and very um, <laughs> it's it's unexpected and weird and uh, and very dramatic, I guess, is one of the best ways to describe it. But uh David Diggs, I think, is definitely going to be um, a star on the rise after this movie. It's it's one of those. It's a passion project. I think he and his co-writer, who also co-stars in the film with him, have been trying to get this movie made for years and years and years. And now, finally, because of the success of Hamilton, I think he probably has a little bit more of the clout and name recognition to actually get this movie made. And um, I think Lionsgate is putting it out, uh, yeah, on July twentieth. So just a, a couple more weeks. But this movie is it's very powerful. It's um, like I said, it has a lot, it wrestles with a lot of big ideas, but it's also very, very funny. So uh, I think it, it's definitely a crowd pleaser and people are going to get a kick out of this one. Yeah. Another one of those movies that isn't out quite yet, but is coming out later this summer is Madeline is Madeline. Uh, and that was uh, one of Chris's top picks. Chris, uh, number five. Chris, tell us about it. Uh, yeah, this is a film from uh, Josephine Decker. She makes very obscure I guess you'd call them art films. Uh, and um, this is definitely the best film she's made yet. Um, it's about this this young woman played by Helena Howard, who's a, uh, I think this is her first film. And she's in this acting class, but she's also, uh, it, it's very vague and deliberately so, but it's clear she has some sort of mental uh, health problems where she was institutionalized and she's on medication. And she's, she's, obsessed with acting to the point where she literally becomes other people by studying them. Like she sees someone on the street and she can turn into that person. And, uh, but the film is very strange and dreamlike. There's all these 
very weird close-ups and out of focus stuff and i know that sounds really pretentious and arty but it doesn't come across that way when you're watching the film it's just it's a phenomenal movie It, it puts you in the headspace of this main character but then as the film progresses it's not really clear if it's really in her headspace or if it's in the headspace of someone else in the movie it's just it's a very strange, unclassifiable film, and uh, I don't know. I, I really liked it. And this movie comes out August 10th in limited theater, so you might have to, you know, seek this one out. Uh, but but a, a big movie uh, that, you know, a wide release that hit theaters, a comedy of, of all sorts. I think this might be one of the, the only all-out comedies on this list. You know, I guess Ant-Man's kind of a comedy. Uh, is Game Night. And HT, you, you alone had this as your number five. Uh, why? Game Night is great, guys. I don't know why you guys don't have it on your top 10. But it's it was a movie that gave me a hope again in studio comedies that they're no longer just broad and silly and crude, but that they can be funny and clever and stylishly directed. So Game Night is directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. And it it follows a couple who are obsessed and overly competitive when it comes to games. And they host a weekly game night with their friends uh, that suddenly turns dangerous uh, when uh, the Jason Bateman's character's older brother uh, comes into town and introduces a sort of murder mystery night that turns into an actual murder mystery. And uh, it's it sounds like the premise for a pretty silly movie, but it's so energetically directed. And Rachel McAdams and Jason Bateman are hilarious in this movie, especially Rachel McAdams, who proves once again that she has co- like hidden comedy chops that people often forget or under under kind of pre- uh, uh, she's underrated for. Yeah, yeah. sorry, what? underestimate yes underestimate that's the word (laughs) underestimate her for and um it's so one really fun thing about uh game night is that they have these really interesting and stylish transitions between frames that are basically film like uh board pieces uh and it's it's very cool and it's just something that you wouldn't expect to put so that they would put so much time into a studio comedy like this and it just has uh, a great cast and again Rachel McAdams is a star in this and has some of the best lines of the year so uh game night definitely check it out and don't underestimate it as many have Rachel McAdams you know I I have underestimated this film and when I saw it it kind of blew me away like if I were to make a top 10 list of this year so far and I know I haven't seen as many films as you guys but i think this would for sure be in my top five and i'm not even like a comedy guy i, I, I and one of the things i do want to re- respond to you ht is like one of the things I, I love about this film is a lot of comedies are shot so generically almost like tv shows like they you know do multi-camera setups so that you know the improv they can capture the improv from multiple angles and uh, the directors here with game night just shot it cinematically there's like this great sequence that's done all in you know quote unquote one take that's fantastic and uh one of the best one take uh scenes of this year thus far i i just had so much fun with this film and uh yeah so if and jesse you... plemons is hilarious in this movie he is great he's is another scene stealer too yeah he is fantastic uh let's move on to sorry to bother you which was ben's number five 
Yeah, I've been hyping this movie uh, ever since. Again, I saw it at Sundance. I've seen so many of these movies at Sundance. Um, so this one actually comes out uh, tonight or tomorrow, July 6th. Uh, so you can go see it immediately after you listen to this if you have the opportunity. And I would highly recommend it. It's a very, very weird movie. So go into that knowing that it's very strange. Uh, this is the first film from... Boots Riley, who is an artist and an activist and a musician who's been around for a long time. And this is the most creative social satire I think I've ever seen. It is an unforgettable movie that is unlike anything that's ever existed before. Lakeith Stanfield plays a telemarketer who unlocks the ability to talk with a quote unquote white voice. And I think it's, um, oh God, who who plays the voice? Uh, the guy who plays Tobias Fimke in uh, Arrested Development. What was his name? David, David, David Cross. David Cross. Yes, David Cross. Uh, he, he <laughs> So David Cross's voice comes out of Lakeith Stanfield's body, uh, and he has this sort of superpower to become uh, like a, a power caller, a ma- you know, like a huge telemarketer who who uh, is able to um, close deals, fa- you know, faster and better than anybody else in his field. And Army Hammer plays a coked out company CEO. Tessa Thompson plays Lucky uh, Stanfield's girlfriend in it, and she's like a a performance artist. And this movie, I mean, it's so creative, it's so out there, and there is a hard turn that it takes like three quarters of the way through that is <laughs> that will leave you. Um, like pulling the hair out of your head like what the hell is going on in this movie it is so uh creative and energetic and it is just bursting with ideas and and, um i I think it's you know for people who uh maybe listen to this show and and go see a lot of things and are able to like easily predict the endings of movies i try not to do that when i when i sit in theaters but i know a lot of people you know they've just seen so many movies that it's easy for them to sort of check through the formula uh this is definitely a movie that is going to mix mix up the formula a lot and um it's it's not something that you're easily going to be able to predict what happens in the end because it goes to some really really wild places Yes, it looks like it has an amazing cast. Uh, it's one of the best-reviewed films of this year. It has 97% of Rotten Tomatoes. I am eager to check this out this weekend uh, with either my movie pass or AMC uh, A-list. Uh, let's move on to Black Panther, which was you know a juggernaut, one of the biggest films of all time at this point. Uh, HT, you, you and Ben both had this at your number four on your list, and this is the highest Marvel Studios film on, on this combined list. Uh, what did you think of Black Panther. Black Panther is just a, a great film. Uh, it's definitely at this point, I think, making its way at the top between this and Winter Soldier for my top Marvel film. But I think that Black Panther is just so powerful in the messages it conveys and in the way that Ryan Coogler, who directed and co-wrote this film, really was able to juggle so many different aspects and subplots within this film without making it feel too cluttered or overcrowded. And it's just chock full of great performances from Chadwick Boseman, who who is uh, almost overshadowed by everyone else just because of how good they are. Michael B. Jordan is amazing as uh, Killmonger, the villain in this film, who is probably the best Marvel villain since Loki. And he's and is very multifaceted and really taps into a lot of the uh, issues that African-American black people are dealing with and concerned with today. And it does it in a way without vilifying or condemning certain aspects of like these conversations. It really brings to, to the fore like these sort of timely issues while like while making them into uh, sort of an, while putting it into an action uh lay box essentially so it it is able to drive this blockbuster 
film and not feel like it's preaching or uh, proselytizing in any way. And that's what I think is so amazing about Black Panther. Yeah, and uh, this is one of the best films of the year for sure. Uh, ben, did you have anything to say about this film? Um, Letitia Wright is like the breakout star. She played Shuri, Black Panther's younger sister, and she is so good in this movie as sort of like a, a female Q. Um, I, I know that there's a lot of uh, talk about the CGI being really awful in the, the back half of this movie, but I also want, I, I think there's a lot of really, really good CG stuff um, in the first half of the movie. Like the the way that Wakanda looks, the the sort of shimmering futuristic city, um, a lot of the uh, the visual effects that, that are... Um, that Shuri's character is involved with. There's a, uh, there's one point where she sort of drives a car remotely, and there's all like it's so hard to explain the the Wakandan technology, but it sort of um it falls into place almost like a like a sand sculpture or something like that. Um, and all of that I thought looked really great. So anyway, the the idea that there is a little bit of some shaky CG and at the final fight of this movie does not uh, offset the rest of how great this film is for me anyway. So yeah, that's why it's number four on my list too. And it's funny you mentioned visual effects because the next film is a sci-fi film which has many, and that is Annihilation, which was on all three of your lists. It was on HT's list at number 10, Chris is listed at number three, and Ben, also on your list at number three, uh, why did you love Annihilation? Man, yeah, this one is so great. So the story follows a group of uh, military scientists, all women, uh, Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, and Tuva Novotny, I believe is how you pronounce her name. Uh, They enter this area called the Shimmer, which is like a quarantined um, zone that there's this mysterious uh, alien uh, entity, I guess, that that's landed there, and it's like this bubble that they walk into, and they're trying to track down Oscar Isaac's character, who's married to Natalie Portman in this movie, and it is, um, the production design in this movie is off the charts, this world is really alien and off-kilter, but also tethered to reality in a really interesting way. There's this mutant bear that shows up in the movie that I'm sure people have probably seen screenshots of online. Uh, It is like one of the most horrifying images I've seen on screen this year. And uh, man, there's just so much going on in this film. I, I, I realize this might be sort of a ridiculous comparison, but I, I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey for the first time uh, a month or so ago. I talked about that on an episode of the show. And um, the ending of both of these movies, it, it sort of, Annihilation sort of reminds me of that in that um, director Alex Garland, who also wrote the script, is sort of going for this, uh, this primal um, association with the audience. I think he's trying to peel back layers of story and and you know get past get deeper than just the uh the cerebral uh what is happening in this film and and getting to this this emotional um core of of a place where it's it's almost it's really difficult to describe but um chris i'm sure you you have something to say about this but i mean yeah i would probably just be echoing everything you just said but yeah this movie um deeply affected me in way i mean i i had read the book so I had some idea of what it was about, but the film changes a lot from the book and becomes its own thing. And I don't know, this is just one of those movies that while I was watching it, I could tell like, all right, some people aren't going to like this, but I love it. And I know years from now, we're still going to be talking about this movie. Unlike 
you know, uh, hundreds of other movies that came out this year. So uh, I don't know. This movie is it holds a special place in my heart. Do you know what I'm talking about, though, with the it, 2001 comparison? Oh. I'm not trying to, like, say that it's as great as a Kubrick movie, but it, I feel like it, on this that sort of like elemental plane, it's sort of on the same level. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It has that same vibe, I guess you could yeah. call it, where I, it's, it's you yeah. know. I, I've been using the 2001 comparison since I've seen it because it kind of like goes into this abstract place where it's more about interpretation and uh, how you feel about it than what it's actually, you know, what you're mm-hmm. actually seeing from a story perspective. And I yeah, think that, yeah. that that's going to determine if you love or hate this film, I think, because if you go into it, it, it kind of sets up as a mystery. And if you really want answers to that mystery, you might be disappointed but if you're along for the ride and willing to you know the best films i think are ones that you can leave the theater and have discussions about and have your uh, you know discuss your interpretation compared to someone else that is completely different um Mm -hmm. and i've just had so many great conversations about this movie and uh, chris has done some remarkable work about this film on the site which i will try to link to in the show notes as well uh but let's move on to Hereditary, which is also a film on all three of your lists. Uh, I have yet to see this movie, guys. Uh, but HT had it at number seven, Chris had it at number four, and Ben, you had it at number two. So tell us about Hereditary. Peter, you got to go see this immediately. I mean, you're talking about Movie Pass. Like, go use your Movie Pass. Do whatever you have to do to go see this movie, like this weekend, because I have not been as deeply unsettled at the ending of a movie since I think Kill List, which came out in 2011. So that one also really like left left me sitting in the theater, like in the dark, just disturbed at what I had just seen. And uh, Hereditary, which is the debut film from a new filmmaker called Ari Aster, is uh, really a, a remor- remarkable piece of work because it's a debut movie. I mean, it's it's so confident and controlled. It feels like it could have been the 10th film from this guy, but it's his first one out of the gate. And it's it's so um, it's, it's amazing to me that that is what happened here. Uh, Tony Collette plays a family matriarch who's trying to really um, understand and, and process and come to grips with the death of her mother and keep her family together while some supernatural stuff begins to happen to them. And this film is like a it's an examination of like grief and loss and suffering, but also um, it, it gets it's wrapped up in this tapestry of horror that really uh, it, it, the entire movie, it may as well have been called like existential dread the movie because it's just like the dread builds and builds and builds from the very beginning. And it's so high in the beginning that you there's no way that you could anticipate this film going where it goes and and it just ratchets and ratchets and ratchets and continues to just ramp up this um you know this this insane dread it's not really a jump scare type of horror movie and i, I know it's probably not going to be for everyone but i think uh the performances especially by tony collette who i legitimately think deserves oscar consideration for this film um are so good and the movie is so uh, unnerving and disturbing that uh man this one i think people are going to be talking about this film for a long time see I, I'm in such fear of this movie and not fear because of, you know, what we're seeing and what I see in the marketing. I fear when I see the trailers, I kind of get the impression that it might not be for me. And I, I wasn't one of those people that love the witch. And I kind of get the impression that it's kind of like in that line of move of horror movie. Um, but I definitely am going to see this because all of you guys love this movie. So I know I need to see it. It's just, I, I'm afraid I'm afraid of seeing it because I, I, I have a fear that I'm not going to be on 
the same side as you guys. I movie. mean, I think Peter. Even to be fair, I think even if you end up not liking the story, you should definitely see it just because of the the amazing performance that Tony Gillette gives in this film. I think it's worth seeing for her work alone. Even if you walk out of it going like, "Ah, that wasn't really for me," I think you're going to want to bear witness to the work that she does in this movie. For sure. Okay, let's uh, get to Paddington 2, another, a sequel, the last sequel on our list. And uh, this is on all three of the lists yet again. Ben's list at number nine, Chris's at number seven. But HT, you had this at number two. Uh, tell us about it. I love this film. Paddington 2 was probably the most the most entertaining experience I've had in a theater in a while. It just envelops you in this really warm and like wonderful vision of the world that I think is really necessary in a time like this. And it really expands upon the first film as well, which was kind of just a fun, cute family movie. And Paul King, who who returned to direct uh, Paddington 2 after directing Paddington, really ups his visual game in this um, in this film. His, his style can probably be compared best to, like, a Wes Anderson film. In fact, I think this was probably the best Wes Anderson film of 2018. Uh, don't quote me on that. <laughs> so, um, Paddington 2 follows uh, Paddington the Bear, who is now living and settled with the Brown family, and uh, decides that he wants to buy a pop-up book at an antique shop to send to his beloved aunt uh, back in Peru for her 100th birthday. And it's a pop-up book of London, and he wants to share with her how much he loves his new city. Uh, But unfortunately, it is a priceless antique that gets stolen by a nefarious villain played by Hugh Grant, who is also just amazing in this film. And I remember when the... um, the uh, BAFTA awards were first announced and people were just like were shocked that he was uh, nominated for his role in this film in like a family comedy. I'm not shocked in the least because this is the the most I've seen like Hugh Grant unleashed in a role. He is just uh, just all in. He's all invested in this character and it's just so fun to see him having a blast in in Paddington 2 and also giving like his most I don't, I won't say nuanced performance but definitely most like um um expressionful if that's a word. <laughs> Full of expression. <laughs> Full of expression uh performance. It's just it it's it's such a great warm-hearted film and I really love that Paul King was able to tap into what made the heart of Paddington so strong and also give it a new sense of like visual whimsy and style. And I know we're going along. I know people are going to get something out of this episode. So I think, uh, you know, it deserves to give give the time that we're giving it to giving to it. Uh, but we're up to our last three films, which are the number one films of each of your lists. And it should be mentioned that these three films, uh, the lowest that they rank on any of your lists is number three. So I think uh, there's a big agreement with these films. Uh, let's start off first with First Reformed. Chris, you had this at number one. HD had it number three. Tell us about it. Uh, yeah, this movie uh, blew me away. Um, it's it's from Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver and a lot of other things. Uh, he wrote and directed this. Uh, it's uh, Ethan Hawke plays this um, uh, this reverend at this you know old historic church that almost no one goes to anymore, and he, he's you know he's going about his life in this sort of laid back, not very exciting way. And then uh, he gets drawn into this, this story where one of his uh, parishioners 
uh, ask ask him to to talk to her husband because her husband's having a, a a spiritual crisis, and the husband is just very alarmed about global warming and the state of you know the world as we know it. And it's almost like this guy passes a disease onto Ethan Hawke, where Ethan Hawke's character begins becoming obsessed with the same things this guy was obsessed with. And the whole movie is literally from Ethan Hawke's point of view. And we just watch him in this like slow descent into, I don't want to call it madness. It's just more like a descent into a spiritual crisis. And it's just a incredible movie. Uh, Ethan Hawke is so good in this. And uh, without spoiling anything, the last like 10 or 15 minutes of this movie had me just like, blown back in my seat like I, I left the theater just stunned at what i had just seen so this movie is just uh, remarkable so the opposite of the edge of your seat you were blown back in the back yeah. of your seat. <laughs> yes i mean it's like it, like it floored me in, in a way I, I just couldn't believe where the film was going i was just so uh taken aback with it ht you had this as number three do you have any additional thoughts uh, no, I think Chris puts it really well. I think yeah, Ethan Hawke is amazing in it. And um, I I also really love this film. It was definitely a film that like I was thinking about for weeks afterwards. And uh, it's, it's well, I'll, I'll say this in my later pick, but uh, it's interesting to me that this is the one of two sort of taxi driver riffs that we have in this this year. Well, I, I am interested in seeing this. I have not yet seen First Reform, so that's another on my bucket list for this year. But let's move on to number two, which is a I, – I feel like it's another film from Sundance. Is that correct, Ben? Yeah, it is. Sorry to be the annoying guy on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, this is how much I missed out from not being at Sundance. It's all these great films that Ben saw. Ben, tell us about Searching. Yeah, so Searching is uh, one that I've been hyping for a long, long time, and uh, I legitimately think this is the best movie that I've seen so far this year. It's um, John Cho plays a father who is trying to track down his missing teenage daughter, so that is the the very basic premise. But the movie takes place all, entirely across computer screens, so it's sort of like unfriended in that way. But I, I feel like the visual style is more inventive. There are like push-ins and. And um, it, it seems like there's more going on in each frame than just like a locked off shot of one computer screen with like windows popping up here and there. There's the movie is uh, cinematically it's it's actually it's a cinematic movie, despite the the sort of gimmick of the presentation. Um, the execution is such important such an important thing for a movie like this and i feel like it's really executed at the absolute highest level there are so many layers to what's going on in this movie both you know in the actual story itself but the the way that uh it, it sort of tells a meta story about the way that we interact with technology and the way that we get to know people in real life versus how we know them online and then there's also like literally a ton of layers in the movie because the editors of the f this film had to stack all these graphics on top of each other to recreate uh, these different computer screens and websites and all this stuff. And like the, I, I was I was listening to an interview with them and they were talking about how the computers would just crash like every couple minutes while they were trying to make this movie because there are so many uh, layers. It was like a skyscraper, a city, a city skyscraper in in their timeline on the the editing uh, software or whatever. So uh, this movie has a lot going on in it. And John Cho, who I, I always have enjoyed as a performer is the lead in this movie and he really gets to take a take the lead in an interesting way and and um 
you know, we don't really see him in, in parts like this, where he's just like the regular normal guy, uh, you know, the leader of a, an all-American family. Um, there's also the movie begins with a sequence that reminds me a lot of Pixar's Up!, and uh, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when you see this. And um, I, this movie just it rules so hard. I cannot wait for everybody to see it because it's it's so innovative and unique and uh, and just perfectly executed. Um, the movie comes out on August 3rd. So, uh, yeah, just uh, just under a month um, before everybody can check this one out. I, I am so excited to see this movie just from from your enthusiasm uh, since January. I, I, I just can't uh, can't wait. But let's get to our last and final movie on this list. That is You Were Never Really Here. This was on Chris's list at number two, but HD had a higher at number one. So HD, talk about it. So You Were Never Really Here is what I was kind of speaking of before in being a sort of modern riff on Taxi Driver. And it's a film directed by Lynn Ramsey, who previously directed uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin. And it stars Joaquin Phoenix as a um, sort of hitman who is after this teenage girl who goes missing uh, and is probably has been sold into uh, child prostitution. And he sort of on the way uncovers a systematic corruption that's bleeding through the rest of society. And it's such a great, really um, concise film. Uh, Chris wrote a really great piece on this, actually, in that the power of this film is in the scenes that you don't see. Because most of this film takes place uh, after or before the brutal bloodletting action. It's really poetic in a way that it kind of depicts this uh, hulking mass of a hitman played by uh, Phoenix. And he is just so wary and um, so um, broken down as a person that it it becomes such like it's like becomes like a depressing uh, modern take on Taxi Driver in that it doesn't have that glamorization of, you know, the frustrations of the of masculinity in the, in the sense that Taxi Driver did. It kind of continues that and uh, touches on the sort of toxicity of the lifestyle that he lives and how it slowly wears away at him both physically and emotionally. And it's just a beautifully shot, really tensely directed film that uh, just really spoke to me. And Joaquin Phoenix is giving one of his career best performances. I truly think that he's just like I, now that Daniel Day-Lewis is retired, the best actor of his generation. And uh, Lynn Ramsey should be in in the league should is in league with the best auteurs of today too and i think that she her name should be up there as well chris you had this at number two do you have anything else to add here uh no i mean what ht said is, is pretty much spot on and uh yeah t- touching on that one element where what makes this film so unique for me is how little it shows you um it, it it's a film that actually goes out of its way to keep the audience sort of without like a cathartic sort of reward. Like you want Joaquin's Phoenix to be violent because the people he's dealing with are terrible people. So you, you kind of like, you want to see him, you know, enact, you know, I guess vengeance or justice on this, on these people. And the film never actually gives you that. Like, I mean, you know, he commits violence, but it all happens in ways that's like conveniently off screen. And it kind of like, it throws you for a loop because you're so used to, you know, standard movies giving you that you know emotional release of you know someone enacting that 
that righteous violence, so to speak. And this film doesn't do that. that and that's, it's kind of unique in that way. Well, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. We, next week, I hope to have Jacob and, and Brad talk about their top 10 of the year thus far uh i think we've gone overboard with uh the time so i'm not going to do the the usual goodbyes but uh you can find this podcast published every weekday on itunes google play overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps uh you can find the features we talked about today linked in the show notes and uh please feel free to send us your feedback questions comments concerns to peter at slash what movies did our group miss that came out in the first half of 2018 that should have been on their list but weren't? Uh, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends for the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.